most of you know me as a pretty easygoing, friendly guy. But today I must confess something to you. And you might want to be sitting down for this. I'm not perfect. And one big fault I have is that I hold grudges. When I feel someone has mistreated me, I remember it for years and shun that person in my heart. Doesn't happen very often, maybe three times in my life. Case in point, the rector whose associate I was in Boston for 11 months, about nine years ago. Now I won't go into details, but the gist of it was that my position at that church was as a diocesan paid urban ministry trainee, and the rector was to be my mentor. Well, it became pretty clear early on that he didn't really want an associate. He shut me out of the pulpit, turned down all of my ideas for ministry projects, and kept me apart from the parishioners in a bunch of little ways. I never got to impose ashes on Ash Wednesday. On Christmas Day, I filled in as supply priest for a Spanish-speaking parish up in Salem. And for Easter Day, he suggested I stay home because I'd been at the sparsely attended vigil service the night before. <laughs> Here I said I wouldn't go into details. Um, but let me tell you just one story. We had seven baptisms one Sunday. I think it was in January. I asked if I could do one of them since I knew a few of the kids from Sunday school who were being baptized. He had, after all, let me assist the Episcopal youth intern with youth group. Uh, and I'd never done a baptism before. He said no. Until a few parishioners spoke up and he relented. I actually got to do two baptisms, including the final one that morning, an infant. As soon as I was finished and everyone was applauding the newly baptized, he grabbed the baby and paraded up and down the aisle with him. Later on, he critiqued me on what I'd done wrong, even though his training had consisted of just five words. Just watch what I do. Okay, so there's clearly still some energy around this for me, uh, so let me get back to my point. I hold grudges. In today's gospel reading, Matthew has a solution to such situations when two people in a church are in conflict. He writes, if another member of the church sins against you, go and point out the fault when the two of you are alone. Now, I did that with this rector, but I got rebuffed every time. Relax, he said. And my self-esteem back then was such that I eventually just shut down. If you are not listened to, take one or two witnesses along with you and try again. If the member refuses, take it to the church. Well, I did neither of those things. Never even reported it to the diocese until my exit interview, when they were incredulous and rightfully asked why I hadn't come to them sooner. I felt intimidated, I mumbled. And if the offender still won't listen, let such a one be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Now this is where I excelled. After leaving Boston, 
I punished him the only way I knew how. I cut him off. Knowing he had few friends, was lonely, and strangely enough, wanted to keep in touch, I deliberately snubbed him. And I am sorry to say, it felt good. Fast forward five years. I've accepted the call to come and serve you here in Los Gatos. As the departing interim rector at that time put it in an email to me, you are about to become the luckiest priest in the Episcopal Church. And you know, she was right. You are just lovely. But before I even arrived at St. Luke's, I received phone calls from the senior warden, the interim rector, the diocesan canon to the ordinary, and the bishop, all giving me a heads up about some unresolved conflicts here. Surprisingly for me, I took it in stride and figured we'd work it out. Now, I, I really won't go into details here, but suffice to say, I encountered a bit of unresolved tension in certain little pockets of the parish. Much of it revolved around liturgy, I'm afraid, so we couldn't avoid it. Who had the authority to decide how things would be done at the altar? What was being done wrong? And with four distinctly different worship services at the time, who were we as a faith community? I remember, and I can sort of chuckle about it now, but I remember one parishioner coming to me with a literal list of demands that needed to change around here if he was going to remain at St. Luke's. And, and that was in week two. So the accretion of, the accretion of slights, anger, and controlling behavior around worship had created some pretty thick tension. People avoided being in the same room in the sacristy with certain other people. Others shut down or rolled their eyes at one member's antics before some services. And there were a number of requests not to be scheduled when certain other people were serving, which made for a kind of a complicated scheduling job. Now, I'm sorry if this sounds like I'm airing our dirty laundry, but there is a point I'm trying to make. I did my best to confront these situations when I could, to iron out the rough spots, to confront the people involved. But, you know, after a while, I got so busy with other things, and frankly, I didn't want to deal with some of the conflicts. So I learned to accommodate the behaviors and to drive around the potholes in the journey. That was not good modeling on my part. What I should have done, and maybe forced us all to do, was to take this passage from Matthew today and announce a season of reconciliation for St. Luke's Parish. Because honestly, I, be, I believe there was an accumulation of woundedness woven into the fabric of the parish when I arrived. And if we had taken the time to face it, who knows? We might have changed some hearts back then. Now that said, I truly believe we are a much healthier and happier church family than we were three years ago. So much of that initial drama has resolved itself or we've just moved on and decided to focus on the light and not the shadows. Now the shadows still remain in some corners, but 
we are a stronger community now, and I don't think those shadows are so dominant. If you take nothing else away from this sermon, I pray you will take away this next sentence. Almost always, what we perceive to be false in another person and in their behavior is actually a manifestation of their own woundedness. And if we can approach such people with compassion and empathy and love, we will work wonders in the reconciliation department. It took me a long time to realize it, but I believe that the actions of that rector back in Boston were in part the result of his own wounds, his longing to be loved and appreciated by others, which in turn led to an inability to share the affection he received from parishioners with me. I wish I had figured it out then. Maybe we could have been friends. All of chapter 18 in Matthew's gospel is concerned with maintaining the integrity of the Christian community. In the verses prior to today's passage, the parable of the lost sheep shows how important it is to Jesus that no one in the community stray or be left behind. In the verses following today's passage, which we'll hear next week, Jesus tells the story of the unforgiving debtor who gets pardoned for a large sum that he owes, then turns around and has someone thrown in jail who owed him just a little money. And today's message is plainly stated. We are accountable another. So if someone offends you in this community, Jesus says it's your responsibility to confront the problem, ideally with this step-by-step -step process. You know, it's hard for us today, I think, to comprehend the level of involvement in each other's lives in those early Christian communities. Uh, because frankly, the church is not as central to most of us in our everyday life today as it was for those early Christians. Or to put it differently, their faith group was about the only place they experienced community. For us, church is one of a few options. We have hobbies or book clubs or circles of friends outside of church or affinity groups from other parts of our lives. And then also, unlike Matthew's community back then, we can avoid having to deal with conflict in a church by simply leaving and going to another church. Now, I would challenge you to find a better church than St. Luke's, but you have the option of trying. For those early Christians, their faith community was all they had, the local church. So it was especially crucial that they address internal conflict before it tore them apart. Maybe one of the silver linings of this time that we've been apart is that it's made us realize just how important and central church actually is and always has been for us. You know, even I kind of took it for granted and it's my vocation. Yet here we are, week in and week out, staring at our computer screens and longing for Jesus. Jesus the body of Christ, 
as found in the blessed sacrament, but also Jesus as found in us, the faith community that we miss so much, the body of Christ in the world. We are now separated. If you take that body of Christ metaphor to its logical conclusion, we are torn limb from limb right now. But one day we will be reunited, sutured together again. Frankenstein monster of love and faith, compassion and action. Let's take these lessons we're learning in our time of exile. Let's commit to, want, to love one another so much that we will work on healing those rifts that have torn us apart in the past. Now that we're living through an enforced separation, maybe we'll finally see how unhappy it makes us to participate in any voluntary separating ourselves from our brothers and sisters in faith with whom we have conflict. You know, we're doing so well in this time. It's great to feel those connections that have rushed in to fill the gap of actually being in the pews together. This is a wonderful community, and we were made to love and to hug and to kiss and to communicate with and to forgive and to be reconciled with one another. When that time finally comes, let's be ready for it.